Welcome back to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business using data. I'm Aaron Norris, along with Sean O'Toole of Property Radar, and this is episode 40. Today, we're really excited to have John Schaub. He's been in the business for over 40 years. He's been through seven recessions, uh, interest rates that have ranged from under 3% to over 16%, and he is the author of the best-selling book, Building Wealth, One House at a Time. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Aaron. How did you get into this game of real estate? Um, when I was very young, you know, I had things like paper routes and ditches and things, but then uh, I had some summer jobs and I watched some people who were in the real estate business make a lot of money and it looked easy to. Uh, so that's back when I was in high school. And uh, so I took a lot of courses in college. I got my license while I was in college. I started actually selling houses before I had my license, just, just the house itself, not the real estate, but just the contract to build the house. And then I just fell into a couple of deals right out of right out of college. I, I sold an apartment building while I was in school yet. Got a commission check. And uh, I was making more money, you know, off of that than all my friends who went to law school made their first year out of law school. So I said, let's stick with it. And uh, so I've stuck with it ever since. You know, there's been some good years and bad years. The first 10 years, there were, there was a lot of lessons learned. Uh, but, but, you know, after that, we, we uh had a lot more recessions. The first couple of recessions were exciting. The rest of them were fun. <laughs> so uh, if this is your first one coming up, hold on. <laughs> It'll be exciting. What did you study It'll in school? It'll be exciting. <laughs> yeah. What did you study in school? Was it even real estate related? I, I was a business major. Management was my uh, my major. But I took every real estate course they had. And then the University of Florida had a number of real estate courses. So I was taking real estate courses. I took a lot of accounting courses. So I did learn some things in school that helped me as I got out. Yeah, uh, and we had sure. a couple That's of we had a couple of instructors who were, were big time investors in, in Gainesville, Florida, where I went to school, and uh, so I was lucky enough to have some of them as professors. Hmm. Nice. So mentors right off the bat. Well, they knew the game, and, and I was paying attention, so <laughs> that helped. Yeah, I think that's half the battle sometimes, just showing up and and being being in it and paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. I think okay. your book, John, is one of the ones I refer people to the most. My, I don't know if you know this. The very first time I ever saw you speak was invite by Geraldine Barry, uh, who ran the San Jose Real Estate Investor Club. Um, she invited me up there. Um, Miller, you, and uh, Peter Fortunato completely overwhelmed me that day. I had never been thrown so much information so quickly. I was so lost. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think what I really enjoyed the most was seeing how different the three of you were in your approach to the business and wildly successful in your own ways. Um, and I gravitated towards you and I got your book after that day and it completely changed my life. I thought being in this business, growing up with my dad being a full-time flipper, that if I wasn't doing 10, 10 every month, I was failing at life. And yeah. your formula in your book was very simple. It's it's one house every year. You get 10 and you pay them all off and you can be done. And I was like, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> <Is> it, <laughs> fun. Is it really that simple? And yeah. after reading that book, I pulled the trigger and I, I got there faster than that. But um, I just really appreciated your book. It's my number one book that I refer to people to get started because you make it very accessible. So thank you. <laughs> well, the second edition was published in 2016. So it, it's a lot newer. And uh, then there'll be a third edition come out someday, but I'm not sure when. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna I, wait for the next. I'm gonna wait for the next recession and write the third one. <laughs> I was. I I just bought and then downloaded the the one from 2016. What was the major changes that you made in the latest edition? 
Well, between 2006 and 2016, we had 10 pretty exciting years. So <laughs> I, I talked about much more about cycles and uh, you know, how to be prepared. And, and uh, But a lot of it's the same. You know, I'd say 75% of it's the same. You focus on a very specific niche in the real estate space when it comes to holding as well. Can you talk a little bit about what you focus on? I started in the land business. And uh, so unlike most people who buy houses, I spend more time studying the lot that the house sits on than the house itself. Uh, I'm convinced that over the long run, the land is what's making me the most money. It goes up in value. So if I have a good lot in a good area, a good subdivision, you know, it's the right shape, looks the right, the right way, has good neighbors, I'll just make more money because of that. Uh, the, the house is secondary to me. The house is going down in value, actually, most of them anyway. Uh, so I'm just looking for a house that I can maintain with a reasonable cost in a neighborhood with really good lots. And over the years, I've just ramped up, not in not in houses. You know, people say you're buying a more expensive house. And I said, not really. I'm buying a more expensive lot. I'm buying the same house on a more expensive lot as I ramp up my, my portfolio and, and have fewer and fewer properties. Uh, so that, that's been a major change for me. And uh, and that's what I try to, to get people to think about. You know, it, it's a uh, you want to buy the highest quality lot that you can afford. And of course, the cash flow has to work out. When you're first starting, you've got to be able to make some kind of sense out of the cash flow. You know, if you have a good job, you're making a lot of money, you can feed it. But, you know, if you're like me, I started without a job, without any cash flow coming in. So I had to, to make every property I buy break even at least and make, make some money. I like I like your uh, take on the lot. You know, everybody says location, 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 but that misses some pieces of it. You know, um, you know, I was doing some analysis of lots and, you know, like some lots have five other neighbors around them. Others have, you know, two streets, uh, one neighbor and maybe uh, open space. Right. And there's pretty big differences even within a subdivision that I don't think a lot of people pay attention to. But it makes a really big difference in quality of life. It makes a big difference in the the type of tenant you get. And then when you go to sell it, how much money you're going to get. So, I mean, it's uh you know, it's a, it's a way to fine tune the program. You know, you start off just buying anything that somebody will finance for you. But after you you master that part, then you start fine tuning this and, and buying better quality properties, which means better quality lots. Appraisers drive me crazy because they pay no attention to the lot. They just measure the square foot of the house and they, they do their math and they're done. Uh, which is just, and and, and they they are way off sometimes. I mean, a couple houses back, the house I bought was because the people next door appraised their house and, and uh, the same appraiser appraised this house. And he did it just based on the square foot of the house. Well, the house next door was 2,200 square foot. The house I bought was 1,000 square foot. <laughs> I made a much better deal <laughs> when he just multiplied the number times 1,000 instead of 2,200. And actually, the, I bought it for less than a lot value. So it's, uh, it's interesting. After all these yeah. years, have you landed on sort of your ideal house? Well, the ideal house never breaks and attracts a long-term tenant, but there's, you know, everyone's different. Everyone's different. But I've got a lot of houses that I really like that I've owned for 15, 20, some of them 40 years now. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if it's the house, if you're smart enough to buy a house that, that's pretty well designed and well built to start with and your maintenance costs will be lower, uh, the real key, I guess, is the neighborhood and the lots, though. You know, if the lot goes up in value, if the house falls down, you still make money. Uh, so, but you know, you, it just, uh, it becomes a management thing after a while. You know, if you, if you're not comfortable managing the property and the tenants that live in those properties, then you'll probably get out of the game because it's just too much work. 
Uh, but I'm fortunate enough to, to have uh, tenants I really relate to. They like me. You know, they send me Christmas cards and pay the rent on time, and, and life is easy. And of course, I have a lot fewer tenants than most people do. You know, I, I hear people say, "Well, I buy a hundred houses a year," and I always say, "Why? <laughs> you don't need a hundred houses a year. You don't need a hundred houses altogether. You know, you just got ten or fifteen. You've got to have more money you can ever spend. Uh, you know, unless you want two Learjets. One Learjet you can do with fifteen houses." um let's break down the lot a little bit you know so what you know kind of you know obviously data-driven real estate here like so what specific things like um is it how close it is to schools and hospitals like break down like the attributes that you look for when you're looking for that ideal lot yeah, well, I, I uh, before I bought my first house, I was selling lots in the subdivision. And then I actually bought the last 16 lots in that subdivision. And what I learned by doing that, and I did a couple other subdivisions after that, was some lots sold really fast. And some lots were left over at the end, and you almost had to give them away. Those are the lots nobody wanted. Well, if you can just see that difference when you're looking at a lot, you know, if you can just say, this is a lot they had to give away, <laughs> that's the one you don't want to buy because nobody else is going to like it too. And many times those are corner lots that don't have a backyard or they're on a busy corner or a busy street or somebody's headlights come right in your window every time they drive by. So it's just common sense stuff. Uh, but all the things you said, uh, Sean, are important. You know, if you're close to schools, close to shopping, close to churches, close to things people want to do, uh, that that makes the house a lot easier to rent and it'll make it easier to sell something. Okay. All right. So what it's, about, uh, it's just common sense more than rocket science. Now, topography has something to do with it, too. You know, I've, I've seen lots that are down in a hole and they fill up with water every time it rains. You want to make sure that you use some common sense. And my dad, you know, we live in Florida where it rains a lot. We get 16 inches of rain a year. And one thing dad told me early on, he said, just make buy on a hill, you know, buy on the highest ground you can find. And even in a flat place like Florida, there's still high high spots and high low spots. spots. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't buy them in the swamp. <laughs> flood what about size do you like is there a point where it's kind of too big i remember you know we grew up we had a one acre lot and uh we basically lived on less than half of the lot and the the back half was just dirt never nothing ever happened with it like i don't even know why we owned it (laughs) um is there is there any difference on uh size or any preferences there I, t- I tend to buy in, in uh, fairly standard subdivision size lots, you know, and, and that, that changes from place to place. But I love the subdivision. My office is right in the middle of a big subdivision uh, that a friend of mine developed back in the 60s. I've got it a long time. And these lots are all 80 by 120. And uh, so that's a nice size lot in my town. It's not too big. It's not too small. The new lots, you know, out where your dad moved there, are, are smaller. You know, they're, they're tighter. They look more like you know, Orange County, California. They're not exactly zero lot lines, but they're, they're really high density. And some people love that. Uh, they're, so there's not a right and wrong. Uh, and the nice thing about the house business, you can mix it up a little bit. You can have some of each. But I, I avoid the big lots. You know, I don't have anything that's over a quarter acre. I don't have any one acre lots or five acre lots. Tenants don't like them. Very few tenants like them anyway. And tenants that like them are generally in the landscaping business and they have 12 trucks. So those are not the people we want. And park stuff all over it. Yeah. Or horse property or something. They've got something they want to use it for. Yeah. 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 So, you know, if I, so it, it's again, not rocket science, but kind of a normal lot. The, the neighbors are actually more important and then get, don't be on busy streets. You know, I, I bought a couple of houses that I thought were in the path of development, uh, you know, 40 years ago and they're still on a path to development. You know, they're, they're still uh, almost there. 
And uh, so for 40 years, somebody has suffered with bad tenants because of that, because a good tenant doesn't live on a busy street. Doesn't make any sense. Mm. Right, right. Um, is uh, the ADU thing isn't a thing in Florida yet, right? You guys aren't building secondary units, no. Uh, so that, you know, because lot size starts to matter a lot there. If you've got enough room for a second unit, suddenly you can get a, a duplex out of a single family. Um, mm-hmm. That's not a thing in Florida at this time, right? Well, in our area, there were, there were hundreds and hundreds of houses built, and they were zoned for a, a second unit an apartment, more than a house. Not not two houses, not really a duplex, but a single family house plus a like a mother in law unit. But most okay. people rent those out. And there, there's a lot of those, and there's a lot of duplexes in this town. Uh, so yeah. you know that it, it, uh, you, you can you can go any way, either way you want. I don't have any of either of those. I have no duplexes. I have no second unit. I just have houses, and, and uh, you know, I make it work. Them. Yeah, I just make it work with the with the zoning and adding the unit. Yeah, all that makes sense. I mean, you know, know, if you get an extra lot when you buy a house, it makes sense. But uh, so there's little things you can do to fine tune. And again, it's just uh, uh, depends on your area a little bit. What's going on in your area? Yeah, good. Reviewing your book um, last night for preparing for today, I was I was laughing because it seemed like you were very well prepared for the pandemic of what the the current tenant is looking for because of strategically the inventory you go after. So you're looking for a little bit of a higher quality but still working class uh, kind of house and probably with a little bit more space. Uh, <laughs> has your stuff been in pretty good demand? Yeah, all mine are three, two double car garages. You know, I say all mine. There's a couple outliers, but not many. Uh, and, and those houses are, have stayed full. I have not missed a day's rent. Everybody stayed. And uh, we, we had actually we had two turnovers in the last two years, but that's kind of normal. Uh, but so, yeah, it's, it's worked. You know, we, we're we're uh, in the right place at the right time this time. And, uh, I'm, I'm so happy I wasn't in any part of the business. <laughs> Amen. <Anymore. now. laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the commercial business, you know. But, you know, it's funny. The commercial guys, the smart commercial people, are, are going to make a killing in this deal because they're buying out all the dumb commercial people. Uh, and that's and just part of the cycle. Uh, we're, uh, you know, I'm not buying much. I've sold four houses in the last year or so, and uh, we bought one. So we're, we're always looking. We're in the market all the time. And if some, something falls in my lap, I buy it, you know, but we're, we're kind of waiting for more opportunity here. I think when we end up finish all the moratoriums, there's probably going to be more opportunity than there has been the last year or so. Yeah. What brings you to a sell decision? It sounds like you mostly buy and hold. So when do you decide to sell? Well, I, I had, uh, I was weeding out some of my weaker houses and, and I like all my houses and I just like some of them more than others. <laughs> and, uh, and typically that comes down to how long tenants are staying. So if you've had a house where you've had uh, two or three tenants in the last five years, you're saying maybe it's the house and maybe it's not me. Maybe it's the house because my average tenant stays close to 10 years. So the ones we've had more turnover on, the ones we anticipate more maintenance on, the ones we're not happy with the way the neighborhood's going, you know, that's that's what I'm looking for. But, uh, you know, we've been in a boom time here for a while. Last year was a, a surprise to all of us to have this kind of real estate boom during a, a pandemic time, which we've never experienced before. So um, here we are. Let's see what next year brings. It could be exciting again. <laughs> Mike Cantu was the first to really get me thinking about trading my C quality, C properties for B for A, right? And constantly moving up. And I, I found that's that's true. When I first started, like I would go a long way. I'd drive four hours. And then now I kind of want everything pretty close. And and it would be, I'd buy real junk. And now I want really <laughs> good quality. Like, I think that's just part of maturing as an investor. 
Well, it's part of getting smarter. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you're doing the same thing you were 20 years ago, you didn't get any smarter. You're just working hard. So, you know, the Thanks. whole idea is to do it a little bit better every year. And when I, when I teach, I teach people to, to make each deal a little bit better than your last deal. You know, a little, little better property, a little better price, a little better down payment, a little better interest rate, something. Make it a little bit better somehow. Yeah, good. I like that. I think also that, you know, comes with uh, success, right? As you're more successful and you are in a better position, you can maybe accept a little lower return too, right? For better quality stuff. Sure, that- sure. So if you have a high net worth, then you're not as interested and in, you don't need the cash flow because you don't have other other sources. You can just sell one house every two or three years and pick up a whole bunch of cash if you want to. So ab- right. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. How are um, new deals sort of landing in your lap? Are you actively marketing? Or are you just so well known in your market Everyone just knows to call you. Oh, I'm just such a nice guy. Everybody, anytime they have a deal, they they uh, think it's a really good deal. They call me with it. That's that's the way it works. No, life nobody ever nobody has ever called me and given me a deal unless they were getting a commission or unless they were bailing out of something. You know, it's 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 it's, it's greed on both sides. <laughs> Somebody's getting paid on both sides of the equation almost every time. I had years ago, I had a broker call me up and said, I just can't sell this house. You can have it if you want it. So I picked that one up for free and I still have it. I just picked it up for the back payments. But that doesn't happen too often. You know, when, when there's a, a, you know, when we have appreciation, when we have low interest rates, uh, it's really easy to sell a house. Brokers can't get inventory. So uh, no, nobody is stuck with a house right now. But it'll happen again. I mean, there'll be times, you know, I mean, we've seen it. You, know, you said three recessions. I think I've been through seven recessions now. Uh, but there'll be another recession in my lifetime. And when that happens, I'm ready. You know, I, I, uh, it, it's not that I wish bad luck to anybody else, but uh, we, we will find opportunities. And, and last time we just helped a bunch of people. You know, we bailed people out uh, that were in big trouble, but still have big equities and were able to share profits with them. So it, it was good for both sides. How did how did you uh, how did you do that? Some sort of uh, shared appreciation kind of agreement where you bought the house and then fixed it up and sold it, and they shared in the outcome. Tell us a little more about that. Well, it wasn't shared appreciation as much as shared discount. You know, we we would find somebody. Let's just take a round figure. I'm just making this up now. Let's say somebody had a five hundred thousand dollar loan they couldn't pay, and the bank didn't want to foreclose, and we could buy that five hundred thousand dollar loan for two fifty. Then we could go back to the people and say, look, we got two fifty in it. We'll share the difference between the 250 and the 500 with it. You know, you can pay us half of it and, and stay in the house and, and uh, work work it out. So people were able to survive, you know, and, and a lot of these were, were business deals. They weren't just house deals. They were business deals. Uh, but people right. were, were able to survive and we helped them survive and, and we made a nice return and they they are still in business. You know, they, they didn't lose everything. Seems like a lot of small businesses are going to need that uh, here coming up. That's That's the... That seemed to, the small business and the small business owners seem to be the ones that got hurt the worst in this last go round. Yeah, yeah, we did one deal with a with a local truck dealership that the bank had a, had a demand note with the bank and the bank wouldn't extend their note. You know, the banks got got regulated. They they got put out of business too many of them, and and uh, so right. that that trickled down to their businesses, which were good, you know, profitable, functioning businesses, but they had notes that they couldn't pay because the whole thing came due. Uh, so we were able to buy some of those notes at deep discounts again and just make deals with them. So, um, there, there'll be opportunities like that. On the home side, generally, you're, you're helping somebody not not have a foreclosure. You know, you're figuring out some way to help them stay in that house or or buy the house and rent it to them for 10 years. You know, give them some place to live that they can afford for 10 years. So you know, there are different things you can do. Yeah. How are you actively marketing right now for deals then? I'm not. 
You're not. Okay. I'm not, you know, I, I am, I'm not looking to buy 20 more houses. Uh, I'm, I'm just, just kind of hanging out right now because the market is so hot. I don't know what's doing in your town. I know it's hot, but you know, we're looking at 15 to 20% of your appreciation right now. We're looking at multiple offers on everything that comes on the market. It, it's not really the good time to buy. We do have one house we're buying, uh, but it was, it was an outlier, you know, just one of those wild deals where somebody had it for a long time. Well, last time I taught the class, which was a little over a year ago, we, we had one house that had been sitting empty 11 years that, that, that the students find. Now, the students in my class go out and knock on doors and find houses, and they found this house had been sitting empty for 11 years. That house is probably still there. <laughs> you know, other, how, other houses like it. People people do stupid stuff, uh, you know, and I, I don't mean, you know, they, they just don't, don't do smart financial stuff sometimes. They, you know, to let a house sit empty for years and years doesn't make any sense at all. But some people just can't get their act together to sell it. When did you start uh, teaching and doing classes? 1975. Yeah, so quite a while now. I was 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was, I was 25 that. years old, and my, I was partnered up with a guy by the name of Jack Miller, who was exactly 20 years older than I was. He was 45. Jack had uh, recently uh, retired from the Air Force. He was in until he was like 42 or something, got in real estate business. And uh, he and I met each other at a seminar here in Sarasota. Somebody else was teaching. And we got talking at coffee break. And, and, uh, and he called me about a year later, said, you want to teach a class together? And I said, sure. So we started teaching. Uh, and, you know, first couple of years, we taught basically for free to small groups. But over time, we built up a, a reputation and, and we had a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, and we got where we were pulling bigger groups. And then we started charging money and, and it all worked out. But, uh, but I still charge the same price I did back in the eighties. I haven't raised my prices in the eighties. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Your classes are very, <laughs> very and I are doing a class for $295. There's not many people doing a, a two person class for 295 anymore, especially Pete and I, you know? Uh, so, you know, we're, we, we don't teach for the money. We enjoy teaching. Uh, we like to make money at everything we do, but you know, we're not out charging a thousand dollars or 5,000 or 20,000 or whatever. Whatever to go and read. These ones that are like thirty thousand dollars, and it's just like, and there's nothing that you couldn't go read in a book in that thirty thousand dollar class. Yours are great, but it's just, yeah, it's crazy what uh, what some people will spend. So it's great to hear you're reasonable. How many students do you think you've had over the years? Uh, Well, last time I guessed at it was more than ten thousand, so I don't know exactly what the number is, but it's more than ten thousand. Yeah. Lots of cards and notes. Uh, I know I have lots of cards and notes from folks yeah. saying, you know, you changed my life and, and the rest. Yep. Um, and, that, and that's why you do it. You know, you get, you get, I talk to people all the time that, you know, that are past students. We do a lot of fun things together. I go fishing. We were in Argentina with some students. We were in Alaska four times with students. We've been uh, the Snowmass uh, since 1982 every year, except this year, uh, with a whole bunch of students. And, and about 20 of the same people have come every year for 30 years. So it's a oh, wow. It's a good group. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, the people have made money together and doing the same thing. You know, they just like each other. It's, it's a good group. Yeah, for sure. Um, a lot of your uh, book talks about not really enjoying debt all that much on properties. Is the low interest rate environment changed your opinion on using debt and what you're buying right now? Yeah, well, what I've told, uh, and if you read my newsletters, I've been talking to people and my kids, everybody else. I said, you know, if you're ever going to buy a house and borrow money, now's the time. Even if you're paying too much for the house, you're paying 400 for a house is worth 350. You can get a 3% 30-year loan, which is unheard of almost any place in the world other than the United States, by the way. Uh, my son-in-law is yeah. in Australia. They, there's no such thing as a long-term loan in Australia. They're all five-year loans, variable interest rate. 
Uh, so, you know, most places don't have that advantage. And Warren Buffett said a couple of years back, he said, you know, if you could buy some of a fixed rate 30 year loan with low interest rate, buy it. It's hard to screw that up because, you yeah. know, there's going to be inflation. Prices are going to keep going up. And if your payment stays the same for 30 years, it, it's, it's really hard not to, you know, not to make a profit. Yeah, you know, there's a big thing right now with this uh, kind of it's stupid to own a home. Uh, Grant uh, Cardone, Robert Kiyosaki, others are kind of saying, you know, you, you know, that's a home is a terrible asset and the rest. And I'm like, boy, you know, I think with one caveat, you have to you have to know where you want to live, right, for a long term, right. So if you think you might want to move in two years, never mind. But if if you love where you live and you want to be there for a long time, fixing your rent for 30 years is like, imagine your same rent payment for the next 30 years, given what happened to your rent payment over the last five or 10 or two years. Like there's just no way you don't end up ahead. And uh, so many people look at that the wrong way, I think. Any thoughts on that? Well, a lot of the people you mentioned and a lot of folks who are really not in the business are just great promoters. Maybe you're not really good at making money other than promoting themselves. So I, I would say the people who are investors, people who've been investing for 40 years, have kind of seen these market changes and would, would probably agree that although it's not a great time from a price standpoint to buy, it's a great time from an interest standpoint to buy. And interest rates are changing. And they're up uh, about a third here in the last couple of weeks. So they're going to keep going up and we'll wake up at some point and there'll be eight or 10%. Again. And then people say, oh, I wish I wish I'd have got some of that 3% stuff because <laughs> the difference between three and six is pretty big. You know, it's not just 3%, that's a hundred percent. One of the, you know, when I, I have friends and family say, you know, should I buy a house right now? And I say, you know, cause it seems like prices are really high. And I said, well, just imagine for a second, you bought a house at 2006 at the peak of the market, right? And you did so, and you got a 30-year fixed loan. You didn't do the pay option arm craziness. You got a real loan, 30-year fixed, and you could afford that payment, right? And since that time, you know, interest rates have gone from five to three. So your rent has gotten cheaper at multiple points because you've been able to refinance, right, um, to a lower uh, payment over that time. Um, you know, you did great. <laughs> you know, in 2006, all you had to do was hold on through the other. And if you could afford the payment, you kept your job, like even buying at the very worst market that we've had in the last 20 years, 2006, you're still fine today. Sure. Sure. And then in the houses that I sold, I mean, every person who bought a house from me and, and one of them was a person who's going to live in the house, the other three are investors, they all have positive cash flow. You know, they bought the house at a high price today and they went out and got a loan, probably four and a half, five percent, but they all have positive cash flow. Now, if you can buy a house with positive cash flow for a small down payment, buy it. You know, if it's a good area, buy it. Yeah. Yeah. With a good lot. With a good lot. With a good lot. <laughs> better lot's good. <laughs> now, John, do you invest much out of state or do you like to stay no. really local? I, I have a plaque I can I can take on and off. I, if I take it off the wall, I won't be able to put it back on the wall. It weighs too much. But I can show you that I got for buying property in 10 states and making my first million dollars back in the 70s. But uh, it's a bad idea. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, you lose control. I own property in Sacramento. I own property in Denver. I own property all over. I won't name all the places, but all over the country. And uh and, and I made money on some of those properties and I had good partners. You know, what I would do is partner up with somebody uh, they, they would need the cash. I put up the cash and, and uh, 
we do a 50-50 split going out. But most of the time, I didn't Mostly your students? Say again? Most of these folks were your students that you partnered with? Yeah, there were people I knew that called me. I mean, for some reason, they had a deal. Back then, I was doing, I was president of the uh, Florida Real Estate Exchangers. I was president of the Sarasota Real Estate Exchangers. I would travel around the, the country going to these exchange meetings. So more more likely, they weren't students as much as guys who were brokers in the business, and and some of them were students. Um, yeah. I, I've never solicited students for business, but these are people who understood what I was doing. Uh, but anyway, the long story short, if I'd never done any of that, I'd have a lot more money today <laughs> yeah, because it cost me money. And I, 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 now people think I'm crazy because I have all my properties right here in my town in Sarasota, which may have a hurricane one day and may flood one day. The land's not going to wash away. You know, I own some things out on the beach, but most of my property is not on the beach. It's on the mainland. So, you know, it, it's not going to disappear. The land's not going to disappear. Uh, so it's worth, it's worth the risk. So if you live in a normal place with kind of average uh, risk of natural disaster, and that's what I see our town is, we haven't had a, the last hurricane we had was 61. So, you know, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, it, it's a safe place to invest. So I invest here. I, I think that the control you gain and, and the efficiency you gain by managing your own properties, which makes you a lot more money because you're, you're not you're paying for bad management, um, and, and having good information when you buy and sell. It is, is uh, very, very valuable to you. you know, it's worth lots of money every time you do something. Good. Let's talk a little bit about your approach to tenants. I mean, it sounds like most of your tenants are 10 years plus. Is that what is your average? Uh, average? You said, I think you said 10 years. The average is about 10 years. Average about 10 years. We have a little turnover, but you know, I've got people that have been with me more than 30 years. So, and we have a bunch of 20 year tenants. So, the average oh. is probably about 10 years. And that's not a perfect number, but. If you can keep people two or three years in the house, you start making money. If you have turnover after one year, you're not making any money. It costs you money with the vacant days and fixing the house up and, and take your time. And I, yeah. I couldn't manage all the houses that I manage myself. I manage all my own houses uh, if I had a bunch of turnover. I mean, it'd drive me crazy if I had somebody moving out every every two weeks, you know, and, and I, so I don't. <laughs> uh, so the combination is having a, a property they want to stay in. You've got to, you know, start with the house. If you have a, a house in a good neighborhood and it's a, a decent house, people will want to stay there. And then you make the price attractive to them. And then you select your people uh, based on one of my first questions I ask folks is how long do you want to stay? You know, if, if they say six months, they're not on the short list. I'm looking for somebody who wants to stay several years. Uh, the, the, the answer to get you into one of my houses, if you want to write this down, is the rest of my life. Life, yeah. <laughs> Put that on the application. I'm going to rent to you probably. And I've had people write that on the application the rest of my life. And they've been, they're still there. So I hope they live a long time. One of the, uh, one of the things that I heard that I thought was, and I can't, I can't attribute this. I don't remember who I heard it from, but he said, uh, I, he was, I always make a point of looking in their cars. And if their cars are a mess, I won't rent to them. If their car's neat and clean inside, then you know that that pushes them up. Any other tips on finding great tenants? Well, yeah, you give 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 the mom with three kids a break, will you? Because the inside of her car is going to be a disaster. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, you, you check out where they live now. If, if and I, the nice thing about being local is, you know, it doesn't take me a lot of time. All the houses I own, with the exception of two, are within 10 minutes of my office where I'm sitting right now. Uh, my house is two minutes from my office, you know, so we're real close to a lot of stuff. I have a couple that are outliers. One's down on Longboat Key, which is uh, 20 miles from here. I mean, the house is 20 miles from here. And so that takes me longer. And one, another waterfront house up in Venice takes me longer. 
Uh, but most of them are right here. And so I can go out and, and most people are moving from someplace close. You know, I, I don't have a lot of out-of-towners moving into my houses. Most of them already live in, in this town. So I can go see where they live now. And uh, how they take care of the house they're in is probably more important to me than their car. Although, you know, the car is not a bad idea. But if, if, they're, yeah. if you go by their house and it's just garbage everywhere, that, that, that tells you something, too. And, you know, you listen for certain things. You know, tenants come in, I ask them why they're moving. They say, well, my landlord will never fix everything, anything. You know, things are broken in the house and he'll never fix it. That's a sign, isn't it? If the house didn't break itself, <laughs> so right. whoever was in that house was pretty rough on that house. They probably get on the short list, too. You know, you don't want to rent to somebody that's high maintenance. Are but I rent to most of my people have kids. You know, most of them have kids and dogs. They have dogs and and. Uh, you know, the pets and, and the kids and a bunch of stuff that they have, furniture, that keeps them in the house longer. So I'm happy for I, them to move in with all their stuff. I'm always surprised by everybody that's no dogs. Like, you know, I, I don't know, maybe just because I'm a dog person and I like dog people. It's like, I don't know, dog people are good people. Like, that that's the kind of people I want to have. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're responsible, you know. They, they have, they, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, they're taking care of somebody, yeah. They're taking care of, yeah, it's like having a kid. <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah uh, cat people are off the list huh <laughs> no <comment. laughs> no i'm not a cat person <laughs> are you doing a drive by the house or are you sort of being like oh hey i just happen to be in the neighborhood you knock on the door and sort of peek inside like what is um, it like? I, I don't go knocking on the door i just drive by you know and, and you know you go on google earth and it's probably this week's picture you can you can see what the yard looks like from google earth but uh that's good. You know, I, go, I know the neighborhoods. I know where they're coming from. I use common sense. If somebody's coming out of a one-bedroom apartment, I'm not going. I don't want to rent to them because they don't have any stuff. You know, and, and uh, typically, if they're coming out of a one-bedroom apartment, as soon as they move in, they're going to be looking for a roommate. Uh, I just as soon have a you know have a family unit or some people people are somehow related. You know, and if they've been living together for ten years, that's fine. Uh, I'm happy for them with them. But uh, you know, I don't want somebody to go out and recruit two other people to live in the house. That, that generally doesn't work out very well. No. Yeah. I, I, that was my first rental. <laughs> I was, I bought a house when I was 18 and, uh, and, uh, yeah, ended up having to rent it out and I did exactly that. And it was very bad. Yeah. Very bad. I remember I had, I had, uh, three young women rent from me for years. And, uh, then a couple of years later, some guy showed up and they wanted to rent a house from me. And I said, I said, how'd you find me? He said, well, you rent to our, our girlfriends. I said, Oh, that's nice. And I said, did they tell you what the deposit would be? And they said, no. I said, well, the deposit is special for you guys. <laughs> so in my state, there's no limit on deposits. So I gave them, you know, a great big number for the deposit. And I said, if you mess up, you're going to lose all that money. They, they went someplace else uh, because they knew they were going to mess up. They just knew that, that, you know, they weren't going to keep me happy. But, uh, you know, you, you, it's a business. You know, you can't let somebody move in just because they like your house. And, and that's that's a mistake the beginning landlords make, you know, and I made it. You know, you had an empty house. Somebody wanted your house and said, sure. Well, that's not a good idea. You, you have to qualify them somehow. And, and the more experience you have, uh, the more stories you have, you can tell them, you know, like I did this once before. It didn't work out. Uh, then, 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 you you know, you, you do a better job of managing. I made a lot of mistakes in the last decade. My first full cycle of being a landlord, I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm deciding that I'm probably not the best landlord because <laughs> I'm busy doing other things. And you believe very much in self-management, right? I manage all my own properties and I've had people manage for me. Uh, the only thing I've done 
uh, and this isn't lately, we started this doing 10, 12 years ago, but I have one, one person here in town that I, I lease properties to. He gives me a net net amount. He pays the taxes, the insurance, pays all the maintenance. He gets all the overage. So the numbers I get are lower, but they're fairly close. You know, in a normal house, I end up with about 60% of the gross income, about. You know, taxes, insurance, and maintenance heat up the other 40%. Well, with this guy, I'm getting about 50% of the gross income. So he's making about a 10% profit. And if he does a really good job of management and is lucky, his maintenance cost will be lower. You know, if he does some of that work himself, he can keep that cost lower. I don't do any of my own maintenance work. You know, I hire it all done. Uh, it just, I, I figured out a long time ago that, first of all, I'm not real good at it. And if I'm over there painting the house, well, how much money am I making? You know, that, that just doesn't... It doesn't fit in my uh, my cash flow plan. So I, I can make more money doing something other than painting the house and trying to fix it or mow the grass, which I did all those things You know, when I was a kid. When I was first started out, I do everything. Uh, but if, if you can't make it work by hiring people to do those jobs, then it's not really an investment. Now, the, the exception to that is the management. I, uh, you know, Because I, I've tried to delegate management, very few people do a good enough job for me. Uh, you know, they let the house sit empty too long, or they run into the wrong people, or they pay too much for maintenance. And uh, my numbers, I can just look at numbers. You know, I know the real numbers should be someplace in my town, about 60% of the growth should be my net. And if they're not close to that number, they're not doing it right. Hmm. What are the opportunities that you're sharing with students right now? Because we are on on fire, everybody really wants real estate. What's the best way to chase opportunity right now? Well, the, the opportunities that are still out there, that there's a lot of money looking for a home. So there's a lot of money sitting in the bank making 0.6% or 1% or, you know, CDs are paying just about 1% right now, uh, looking for more cash flow. And there was an article, I think, in the journal yesterday talking about all the uh, the big buyers, you know, people uh, buying groups of houses. Uh, I think the example they used was uh, one of the big home builders, built a whole subdivision and sold the whole subdivision to somebody. Um, so people are chasing yield. That's going to change. Uh, when interest rates go up and people can put money in the bank and make 5%, or people can buy a bond and make 6 or 7%, or the big guys can go do something else and make a higher yield without the hassle of real estate. Remember, it is illiquid. <laughs> when you go, when you buy 150 houses, doesn't mean you can sell them the next day, as long, unless you could find the next guy who wants to buy 150 houses. Uh, and and that, that market certainly could change. So some of the big players are going to end up with a bunch of property, which they'll have to liquidate at some point, and they'll, they'll list it and sell it. Yeah. But uh, they, they may not make as much as they think they're going to make because they're paying high prices today. And people are all excited because they're paying all cash. Well, that's because they have all this cash. I mean, there, there's a lot of cash sitting around earning less than 1%. And if they can show them how to make 4% with it, they're pretty happy. Uh, you know, our, our average house makes even at today's prices, better than 4% cash flow. Better mm. than 4% cash flow. So that's that's why they're in the, in the game right now. Have you been following the eye buyers in, in the, the Tampa market, sort of what they're doing and what they're not doing? Um, I don't have any personal experience by selling to them, uh, but I, I do, like when I sold these houses, I, I was solicited, you know, and then the numbers, the, the offers I'm getting from them are significantly under the market. They were about 20% under the market. So wow. no reason to sell on a hot market to somebody for 20% less than what it's really worth. What's funny is having rentals in both Florida and California, their marketing is slightly different. So I get the Florida marketing and it's a little bit more generic, different colors. So 
I love getting to see the different opportunities, but they have changed what they're willing to offer. Um, we interviewed a company called Zavi on the show and uh, they work with realtors that don't currently have an in-house sort of cash offer platform. And what mm-hmm. they do is they combine all the different iBuyers. So they actually get to see the offers and they did say that they're getting far less aggressive. You know, a few years ago here in the Inland Empire where I'm based, they're basically, the offer price was almost full ask or, or market price. And then of course they're taking the discount, but it was really aggressive. And I think that after the pandemic, they've changed a little bit. Um, so it's interesting to hear that they're, they're off that much in your market. That's surprising because your market is so hot. Yeah, well, it is. And then the last one, to be honest, just to put it in perspective, the last property we sold was probably three months ago. So it may have changed in the last three months. I don't have any firsthand experience after that. You don't sell a lot. So you hold it on. Well, I don't sell a lot. <laughs> so, I don't like paying taxes. And when people say, how do you avoid paying taxes? I say, you don't sell. It's just that simple. You just hold on to your assets that are going up in value. Yeah, you know, if you really need some money, borrow it. You know, you can do that without paying taxes. So there, there's different strategies, and uh, and, and to your point, you know, if you're if you're going to borrow money, not, the day is not a bad day. You know, you're going to. I talked to a, a student yesterday who was refinancing seven of his houses, and, uh, and I think uh, it was about five percent. Well, you know, it wasn't a terrific interest rate, but it was a good interest rate. And his portfolio loan took all the houses, and it, it all works. So, uh, it's still a good time to borrow. Yep. So you are, you're teaching coming up, right? I am. Peter and I are teaching a one day class. Uh, I've got it on my screen here. I don't know if that helps you or not. Uh, can I'll you just, see that? Um, I, it's not coming up on the screen, but I'm definitely, I'll post a link on the show notes. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a Saturday, the, the 24th of uh, April. It's a one day, six hour Zoom class starts at 11 o'clock in the morning for you California folks. Uh, so, <laughs> and then and, and Pete and I stay on after we do six hours live. We'll stay on and do a Q and A. You know, to answer questions that people have after that for an hour or two. So uh, you'll you'll get your money's worth. We, we enjoy doing it. Uh, you know, the focus is going to be on uh, you know what what should you do here in the next six months to a year. Uh, you know, as things change. Now you've talked about some interest rates. Uh, you you really think interest rates are going to increase quite a bit? Well, they have already. I mean, yeah. it depends on if you look at, you know, they've gone from about two and a half to three and a half. And that's when you do the percentage, that's not a bad jump. Uh, I, I do believe they'll, they'll be higher. I think inflation is, is probably in our future. And uh, I'm a lender, you know, and I'm not making a lot of loans right now because I'm not going to make somebody a five year loan at 4%. I, I think uh, I'd be getting money back that's worth less than what I'm giving them today. So, uh, we're waiting for rates to go up and, uh, you know, our favorite thing to do is to buy a note at a discount anyway. So we're, we're really looking for those kinds of opportunities. Uh, note buying. Is that what you said? Yeah. You know, buy, buy, buy existing notes, but buy them at a discount. You know, we buy from lenders and, and they've made bad loans. <laughs> uh, some okay. of them are institutional, some are private people, but the people have made bad loans. Folks we buy from. How do you, how do you find those opportunities? Um, they're, they're everywhere when, when the cycle changes, you know, when, when, uh, like I say, when they, when the foreclosure moratoriums off and, and the, the uh, eviction moratoriums go off, uh, there's going to be some opportunity. There's a lot of folks who haven't made payments. Uh, and, and, and that right now there's people buying houses who probably shouldn't be buying houses. You know, the credit market is a little bit looser than it was. Uh, so, uh, there'll be opportunities. I can't tell you when it's going to be. I'm not a, I'm not a soothsayer, but, I just know because of seven seven uh, recessions over forty years, and it, it will happen again. 
It just, it is, it's just part of the cycle. You're uh, still February, we said it wouldn't happen before at least April of this year. And it's, we were definitely right on that. Um, I'm, I'm less certain though about how much farther it is out still. Um, I think Q4 is probably our best, you know, chance of starting to see a bump in uh, foreclosures of any meaningful sort. Well, one thing we've learned is that the future is pretty unpredictable. Uh, we, you know, we, I was sitting in a, our, 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 our ski group was together in February last year. So just a little over a year ago right now, and, and, and nobody was talking about the pandemic. Nobody. <laughs> but uh, we ran around the room and everybody said, something's going to happen. We don't know what it is, but something's going to happen. And here we are. Uh, so it, it's really hard to figure out what's going to happen to, to cause the next recession. But uh, it'll happen. They're just It's just like the tide coming in and going out. You know, people get greedy. They buy too much. We're seeing builders right now making more profit per unit than they've ever made. Uh, and they keep raising that up, you know. Uh, so at some point, uh, they, they won't be able to sell that product. Uh, and I don't know if it will be because the banks will quit lending or something else will go on. Something, something will happen. And uh, come back in a year, and we'll talk about it. Yes, we will. <laughs> yeah, land is on fire in Florida right now. It's pretty interesting to see. Um, the 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 lot prices the last show we actually had somebody who specializes in land in florida and he was sharing about um land that was being bought for a hundred thousand that then went under ten thousand and the biggest difference was uh you know the lending has never shown up to lend on land at those kinds of rates but uh my sister lives in texas and she was telling me that she attended a land auction by one of the public builders to where what the builders are doing in the texas market is just having people show up and they have an auction on the land nothing to do with the sticks and bricks like you want to live there you're going to pay all cash for the land and they run up those land prices like crazy and then you end up placing a eight to nine hundred thousand dollar house on top of that so um <laughs> yeah builders are having a lot of fun right now if they have developed lots yeah, yeah. pretty crazy Wow. The, the big article on our paper last Sunday was about a guy named John Ringling, who was one of the first developers in this town mm -hmm. who went broke. <laughs> During the land boom took him out, you know, of the 20s and 30s. And then uh, I've got a guy's uh, last dollar bill up on my wall that his attorney gave me. He was one of the biggest developers in this town. And he went broke at 65. So it, this is something that comes and goes, you know, it, just because it's working right now doesn't mean it's going to work a year or two from now. Um, the house business has been fairly stable. You know, prices certainly have gone up and down. We had prices drop in half in this town, uh, but I didn't lose my tenants. The tenants hung around. So it's just been a, a safer way to make money over the long term than land speculation and commercial speculation and all the other things that you can do, which get a lot of fun when they work, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they're riskier. So what we do is not very risky. I look for my excitement in things other than real estate. Did you uh, take much of a hit on rents? During the last downturn? Yeah. We had uh, about 80% of the people stayed in place with the same rent. We lost 10% of our people. They just disappeared on us. And the other 10%, we, we dropped, dropped our rent. So we, we and, the, and, and the house that we re-rented was at a lower rate. So about 20% of the portfolio, we had reduced the rent to keep people in place. The other 80% stayed. And that's because they were, you know, my rents are not high. We're on the low side of market. We stay on the low side of market. We're not 30% below, but we're probably 10 to 15% below the market. So people like us and they, they know, you know, to move is no fun unless they can find someplace cheaper to move. That's just as nice. Why move? You know, so they stay in place. 
especially when you have a recession, people don't like to move. I mean, they don't know if they're going to have their job next week. You know, they, they don't want to do anything exciting. They're, they're, they're hunkering down. Same thing with the, the pandemic. You know, they hunkered down. Is this uh, market getting you excited about things like land or commercial or any other asset class outside of single family? I have pictures all over my office of bad deals I was in. So that I just look up at some of the pictures when I have those thoughts and say, no, let's not do that again. Now, I've heard of a vision board. This is like an anti-vision board. This is a kind of reminder. It's yeah, it's like things you shouldn't do again. You've done them once. They didn't work last time. Don't do them again. <laughs> you People know, I've dated, houses I don't like to should never own again. <laughs> hey, making money should be boring. I tell people this. It should not be exciting. It should be boring. It should be predictable. You should do things that are predictable. Make a lot of money, then go do something exciting. You know, there's a lot. I'll take you skiing if you want to do something exciting. Uh, yeah. or go flying or go sailing, or you know, there's a lot of stuff you can do for excitement that, that doesn't really cost much money. If you look for your excitement in real estate and you go out and sign a $10 million note. I mean, you know, it could be real exciting. It may keep you up at night for a long time and you may be broke next week. So don't do that. That's fair enough. Yeah, definitely <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> uh, do you have any favorite data sources uh, or data that you wish you had access to? You know, the computer has given me data access that I've never thought I'd have. You, know, you can sit right here. And, and the problem is knowing which data is accurate. So mm. accurate data is the key, is the key question there. Uh, and, and, and my, my primary source is public records. I, again, I'm not doing a lot of volume. You know, if I buy one house a year, that's a big deal for me. So it, it doesn't take me, you know, I've got plenty of time to do the research on that, that one house. And I may look at a dozen houses to buy that one. Uh, but I, I don't do a lot of data mining. You know, I'm not in the business of mining data, sending postcards out. That, that's not my game. I think that's what's also great about this business is really just finding your special niche and owning it. That That's why it really resonated with your book. I don't have to be doing 50 deals a year to make it work for me. And I've really enjoyed it because of that. <laughs> I can't tell you what a big difference that made for me. And I, I really enjoy just being a landlord. It's fun. Before we end, I know... Well, if you um, do it right, you know... And then, uh, if you do it right, what? Go ahead. I was. I just wanted I just to say, make, if you do it right, it's fun and, and it's it's rewarding. You know, the people you're dealing business with like you. I, I don't have anybody I've ever bought a house from that doesn't like me. I don't have any tenants that don't like me. They, they all like me. So that, that, those those are happy days. You know. I know you do a fair amount of work with Habitat for Humanity, or you have. Are you still working with them? Habitat. I, I got involved with Habitat when when it was in its early years, and the, the the founder of Habitat, Miller Fuller, was a good friend of mine. We became good friends. And uh, I had him speak at conferences, uh, did a lot of work with him for 25 years. I pulled away from Habitat. We started a new organization called the Fuller Center for Housing about 10, more than 10 years ago now, which is doing what Habitat did when they first started. And that is helping people who really can't get a house any other way. Uh, so the Habitat is still a good organization. They've, they've just changed their mission a little bit. Fuller Center is doing more of the work that Habitat used to do. Uh, so I'm, I'm still in the game, uh, just, uh, with, with different players. And actually most everybody in the Fuller center used to be in habitat. So we're the same, same group, same group. How is it going about sort of accomplishing that mission in this kind of market? It, it's a real challenge because, uh, habitat likes to build new houses. I mean, that, that kind of was their model, building new houses. And unless you had somebody in their organization that could go out and make deals on land, it didn't work. You know, if you paid retail for the land, it was really hard to make it work. Yeah. 
back when I was involved, you know, I was on the board. I had another good friend who's on the board who was a developer. We were putting together deals, that, that land deals that made it affordable for Habitat to build. You know, we found one piece that we were able to get a donation of two thirds of the property and the other third, we got a zero interest loan on. We had another piece where similar situation where there were two owners, one of them had died, so we had to buy the estate out, but again, with a zero interest loan with releases, sold lots, the other guy made a contribution, he donated his property. So you make those kind of deals, you can make it work. But if you go out and write a check for land and, and pay prices uh, that are getting bid up, it's hard to make it work. So the Fuller Center is, is not doing as much new construction. We're doing a lot of uh, repairs, a lot of repairs. And there's an awful lot of folks who have lived in a house for 30 or 40 years who need some kind of help, and they really don't have the money to fix things up. So, you know, we patched up roofs and windows and just a lot of patching. We don't totally rehab the house. We just keep it liv- livable for these people. Very cool. All right. So I, it's good work. I need to make sure I post that in the show notes so people can find out. Uh more information on that, but if they're trying to find out more information on upcoming events and your book and you, where should they be going? Uh, johnshaub.com. That's S-C-H-A-U-B.com. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. And then building wealth one house at a time, easy to find on Amazon and uh, all the links are on your website as well. Um, that's all the questions I have, Sean. Any any other yeah. follow no, John, thanks so much for uh, joining us here and, and uh, sharing some of your uh, journey and your approach. And, you know, most of our customers are the high volume folks doing 10 plus deals a year. But, uh, you know, I know we have listeners out there that uh, the the one year house approach uh, makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think that that's what you're following, Aaron. And, and, uh, and you know, I think it's great. And I hope uh, people uh, check you out, read your book and attend your class. Or these massive well, flippers. Well, that you're doing every year, I just I would just tell them to keep one of those ten houses. You know, keep the best one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the guys so flipping ten. You know what? That's a really great point, right? Because I flipped uh, 160, and I didn't keep one out of every ten, right? And uh, I ended up doing more commercial or whatever. But boy, I think back about that. If I'd kept one out of every ten, um, that would have been. I mean, I, I did fine, but, uh, <laughs> but that would have been uh, a whole nother level. Uh, um, and, and I wish I had. So you, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So for our folks out there doing volume, keep one out of 10. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, thank you so much. Great idea. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that join the community and you'll be forwarded to the Property Radar community where you can ask questions about the current show and even see upcoming guests and ask questions there. We'd love to engage with you in the community, so check it out. Please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, and share on your favorite platform where you're listening to the show. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.